Hey, Mosaic family, we're so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are so glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. Don't forget, our Fall Fest is next Sunday, October 30th at 5 p.m. It's going to be a time of fun, fellowship, and fall stuff out in the backyard. We are looking forward to this time of togetherness, so plan to be there and feel free to invite your friends. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, as always, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. We also have a kids ministry for kids birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age appropriate. We also have a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're so glad you're here today. Let's worship Jesus together. Hey, good morning. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Mosaic. If I've not met you, uh, I'm so glad that you're here today to worship Jesus with us. I'd like to meet you and talk with you, and I'll do everything in my power to beat you out into the breezeway so that I can do that after the service. Um, as Amy said in her welcome, uh, next Sunday night is going to be uh, our fall fest, and uh, that'll start at 5 p.m., and so there will be games chili and s'mores. So uh, who wouldn't want to be in on that? Okay. Uh, so be there or be square. That's all I'm going to say uh, on that. Okay. Uh, the, the second thing is uh, the 2% challenge. We talked about that last week. Just want to give you a quick reminder. Um, we are behind budget uh, as a church this year. And uh, basically the gist of this is if half of our family is committed to increase their giving by just 2%, of their income, we could really uh, get back into an upward trend and be back on track uh, with our giving. And so you can read about that on Facebook or on our app. Uh, I'm not going to give the whole spiel again today. But uh, that said, I, I did hear, as I normally do, I mean, honestly, anytime I talk about um, increased giving, sometimes there's, there can be murmuring and people who don't like that. And uh, I just want to be clear, like, as a pastor, uh, I really dislike talking about finances, um, not because Mosaic hides anything. Actually, we're very transparent about our finances. Um, it's just not my favorite thing to do. It's really challenging to strike uh, the right balance on how to do it, and people almost always get rubbed the wrong way by it. I certainly don't intend for that. But uh, one more thing I would just ask you to consider as you're thinking about uh, committing to this 2% challenge, and it's this, that Mosaic is a... Uh, if you don't know, Mosaic is a very transient church, for lack of a better term. What I mean is, uh, because we are largely made up of young families um, who will not stay in Crestview long term due to military or work or just a variety of factors, uh, our financial giving as a body, uh, it ebbs and flows year in and year out for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with our spiritual health. Okay, now uh, if you're a visitor um, and, you know, this is, I'm not really talking to you uh, right at this moment. Uh, if you don't really care about the, the longevity of Mosaic's budget, then, you know, just zone me out for the next two minutes. But um, if you do care about Mosaic and you're a member here or you're, co you're considering becoming a member, um, I just want to fill you in kind of on this reality because it's important for us to keep in mind that as a church, we lose generous families every year, just about, uh, not because they're upset and like go to another local church, um, but just because they move, right? Uh, last year alone, not many people know this, but I, I'd like to share it. Last year alone, 2021, um, we lost $25,000 in regular giving from members who just moved out of the city or out of the state. Uh, for jobs or life changes and so forth. And so um, that's like 8% of our total budget. And I know when I talk in percentages, it's easy to miss the reality of it. But I just want you to consider what um, life would feel like for your, uh, your family with your family income if it was that unstable. That, that like, you know, maybe you make $65,000 a year, 
but at the end of the year, you're only coming out at like 57. That would put most people in a really tough place, like your vacation would be on hold, or uh, you're cutting your, your eating out budget, or you're, you're switching you know, phone, internet providers, you're not going on dates as much, because you're in a mild financial hardship. And that is a place that Mosaic collectively winds up in every few years, because generally speaking, we send out more mature members uh, faster than we can raise them up. Uh, and in turn, we often lose giving faster than we can regenerate it. And so uh, if this area was not so transient, then we would probably not be having this conversation right now. And to be clear, this is not a, a complaint from me. I just want uh, you to have a bit of insight into why our elders uh, would put forward something like a 2% challenge. It's not because uh, money is all that matters to us. That's far from true. Uh, it's not that we're profiting off of tithe money or anything like that. It's because we love Mosaic, and Mosaic is 100% supported by Mosaic. So if, if we're going to continue to overcome hurdles like inflation and transi- the tra- transient culture of Crestview, then uh, in certain seasons, we have to kind of dig deep, so to speak, and consider the possibility of, of what increased financial faithfulness looks like. My, uh, my final qualification would just be that if you are someone who already gives very generously. You know, you give 10% or even more than that. Please don't feel uh, necessarily like this is aimed at you. Uh, I'm more so speaking to folks who have, you know, some room to grow in generosity. Uh, And for those whom 2% would be a pretty doable jump, all right? So uh, we've had had two families fill out the survey. I said 20 would be great. We've had two uh, fill out the survey to join us in the 2% challenge. So that's better than nobody, whoever, it's anonymous. So whoever two people are, thank you uh, for that, better than no one. Um, and I hope that more of us will consider jumping on board to help meet our financial uh, needs as a church and keep advancing the kingdom of God that way, all right? Now, I promise I will not give a lengthy giving talk again until December when we have our members meeting on that uh, for your sake, but more so for my sake. I can't promise that very often. Okay, Matt will not promise that, <laughs> but I promise I won't. So, all right, let's get into the fun stuff. Today uh, is our last Sunday in Romans 8, and uh, it's, it's so bittersweet uh, because this has been such an encouraging series, I know, for myself and, and so many others. Um, If you haven't been here for it, you're you're welcome to go back on the app or our Facebook page and catch the whole thing. But in summary, um, it's been about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in Christ. And it's just been beautiful, right? I mean, Romans 8 is a chapter with zero imperative statements. It's all indicative. In other words, it's, it's a chapter full of promises about what God has done uh, for us, not commands of what we need to do, right? It's been all about how our salvation came about completely by the grace of God and how God maintains our salvation by his spirit in our lives and ultimately how he will bring our salvation to completion in the end by his Spirit, And that's what our verses are going to hit on this morning. If you've been here for uh, some of it, then I'm sure you recall me saying that every week the things Paul says, they just get better and better and better. And this morning is like the crescendo, okay? Um, It's like on the 4th of July when the fireworks show starts, everyone is just uh, mesmerized, right, in that moment for 30 minutes or so, and just filled with the joy of uh, the freedom of being an American. But at the end, you know, there's the finale, right? For like two minutes. It's just awe-inspiring. You know, fireworks just shooting off with no gap. Boom, 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 right? So that's kind of like what Romans 8, 31 through 39 is like. It's, it's the final words of the best chapter in perhaps the most magnificent book of the Bible, and it's amazing. So um, let's read them. Let's read them, and then uh, we'll pray And then we're just going to rejoice about what they mean for us. So Romans 8, uh, let's pick it up at verse 28, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, okay? And we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else. Paul runs out of things there. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, your love for us is amazing. So as the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian church, so I pray for the believers that make up Mosaic Church, that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant them to be strengthened with power through your spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, truly the promises revealed in the final verses of Romans 8, while it is possible to articulate them, to truly grasp them and lay hold of them as a matter that goes beyond mere knowledge. It requires spiritual birth and empowerment to see with new eyes. And so I pray that you would give those new eyes to anyone who needs them this morning, and that for those of us who already see, by your grace, would you help us to see these verses in a fresh and overwhelming way as we are reminded of the unfathomable nature of your love for us. Pray all this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Okay, well, let me just say there are so many amazing things here. Uh, We could marinate on this passage for a lifetime, and we should, so I hope you will, okay? Uh, But we're going to try to wrap our minds around it as best we can and Uh, 40-ish minutes, all right? So uh, here is how I want to come at it. Uh, I want to bring the chapter of Romans 8 full circle, okay? Because I think that it lends itself to that. Essentially, what the Apostle Paul has done is he has made this rock-solid case over the course of 30 verses for our salvation in Christ by the work of the Spirit, And then, in these final nine verses, he is just, he peppers us with this series of rhetorical questions that all have the same answer that he assumes that we will know with confidence based on his 30-verse preceding argument. Okay, so uh, what I've done is just made an outline where I have condensed the answer to his questions into three concise points. Uh, because I'm a Baptist preacher, okay, I can't help it. Three-point sermons just come naturally to me, all right? And uh, the points are all what I call celebratory truths that are the culmination uh, of the original promise that he began back in verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? All right, let's go. 
The promise of no condemnation for we who are in Christ culminates in three celebratory truths. First of all, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So these are two incredible verses. I love these verses. And first and foremost, the answer to the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's multifaceted, okay? Uh, but the obvious answer to this question is what? No one, right? No one. Because who could oppose the God of the universe and win? Paul's point is because that God is for us, because he's in our corner, so to speak, who then can oppose us and win, okay? Now, there is one complicating factor, which is the fact that people do actually come against us, don't they? People do come against us. But Paul understands that, and he deals with it with the follow-up question of verse 32 that says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so here is the first celebratory truth. It's not the blanket statement that because we're Christians, uh, no one will ever oppose us, but rather it's that there is no opposition that can successfully derail the flow of God's sovereign grace in our lives. This is the argument of verse 32. It's that God has already given the most valuable dispensation of his grace imaginable, right? When we were yet sinners with no hope, God gave us the gospel. John 3, 16, God so loved us that he gave his only son so that if we would simply place our faith in Jesus, his perfect life, his atoning death, and his triumphant authoritative resurrection, then we can have eternal life, okay? We actually talked about this several weeks back, but in the hierarchy of value, there is nothing more valuable than the gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on our behalf, right? The most valuable thing that God could give us was himself, and that is what he's done, okay? And so Paul is saying, if God the Father has already given us Jesus, is there anything that we could need that he will not give us? No, which we read about this last week in Ephesians 1 that says in Christ, God bless us with every spiritual blessing, which means if we have Jesus, church, we have it all. Amen. We have it all. Anything that is necessary for us to have in order to reach salvation, God will supply because he has already made the commitment of supplying the most valuable thing in his son. And if that is true, then who could possibly come against us in such a way that they could derail God's purpose to redeem us for his glory? To quote a hymn that we sing often here, the supply of God's sovereign grace is a well too deep to fathom. Okay? The spiritual resources at our disposal in Christ are virtually unending. There is nothing more for him to give. There is no blessing that he is holding back from us. So obviously, we will face opposition on this side of eternity. There is an enemy who opposes us, Satan. The culture of the world around us increasingly opposes us and our message at certain points in history, even the government opposes Christians in certain places. This is a reality uh, even now for some of our brothers and sisters across the world. For Osram Kamble, who we support in India, this is a reality. But ultimately, regardless of how the presence of some of these opposers of us may loom large in the present, they will not be able to outlast the conduit of God's grace that is pumping without any possibility of blockage by the Spirit into our lives. This is why Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. 
Uh, to use a modern, worldly example, the war in Ukraine, when it began, when it began most people you talked to were really sad um, and not super optimistic because a country like Russia is way bigger and stronger than Ukraine and could essentially bully Ukraine into submission. That was a lot of people's outlook on that. And uh, I certainly, please hear me, I certainly do not want to minimize the pain and the destruction that has been inflicted by Russia on Ukraine to this point. It is despicable, okay, really. Uh, but when the war started, what no one knew to bargain for was that the G7 nations, which is an informal grouping of seven of the world's most powerful uh, advanced countries, Canada, France, Germany, uh, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, United States, European Union, um, the G7 nations have now committed to support Ukraine for, quote, okay, as long as it takes, okay? And so it's not that Ukraine won't still undergo damage and casualties as is expected in any war, but there are now billions of dollars in defense capabilities just flowing into Ukraine all the time. So that no matter how long Russia wants to keep attempting to pummel the infrastructure of Ukraine, Ukraine will essentially just allow their enemy to the east to exhaust their military, cap their military capabilities until they have to give up. That's, that's pretty much the plan, because while Russia may have a, a population and thus an economy multiple times the size of Ukraine, Ukraine now has a source of power from outside of itself that Russia cannot compete with. And this is, in essence, the principle of no opposition that Paul makes in verses 31 and 32 of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? So, you know, there really is no worldly equivalent. I'm, I'm trying here to, to, to show an analogy, but there is no worldly equivalent to the power of this promise. Uh, a couple years ago, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers may have tried to say this. Um, you know, Tom Brady's for us, who can be against us? Um, you know, <laughs> but as we're seeing, sadly, even the goat gets old, Okay. Not so with the lamb, okay? Not so with the lamb. There may be forces in this world that are undefeated, but only Jesus is undefeatable, okay? He never gets old, he never runs out of strength, and he certainly will never give up on his bride, amen? amen. Okay. So to wrap up this first celebratory truth, I want to read something to you from the late biblical counselor, David Pallison, uh, in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, he, he challenges the term of unconditional when it comes to the love of God. I think it's just so fitting uh, with the never-ending supply of God's grace that we see in these first two verses of our text. It, I put some of it in your notes, but I want to read the whole thing to you. It's just so powerful. Listen to what Pallison says here. He says, God's love is much different and better than unconditional. Unconditional love, as most of us understand it, begins uh, and ends with sympathy and empathy, with blanket acceptance. It accepts you as you are with no expectations, uh, and you in turn can take it or leave it. But God's love, on the other hand, is active. He decided to love you when he could have just condemned you. He's involved. He's merciful, not simply tolerant. He hates sin, and yet he pursues sinners by name. God is so committed to forgiving and changing you that he sent Jesus to die for you. He welcomes the poor in spirit with a shout and a feast. God is vastly patient and relentlessly persevering as he intrudes into your life. God's love actively does you good. His love is full of blood, sweat, tears, and cries. He suffered for you. He fights for you, defending the afflicted. He fights with you, pursuing you in powerful tenderness so that he can change you. He's jealous, not detached. His sort of empathy and sympathy speaks out with words of truth to set you free from sin and misery. And he will even discipline you as proof that he loves you. God himself comes to live in you, pouring out his Holy Spirit in your heart so that you will know him. He puts out power and energy. God's love 
has hate in it too. Hatred for evil, whether done to you or by you. God, God's love demands that you respond to it by believing, trusting, obeying, giving thanks with a joyful heart, working out your salvation with fear, delighting in the Lord. So if you receive blanket acceptance, then you need no repentance. You just accept it. It fills you without humbling you. It relaxes you without upsetting you about yourself or thrilling you about Christ. It, it lets you relax without reckoning with the anguish of Jesus on the cross. It's easy and undemanding. It does not insist on or work at changing you. It deceives you about God and yourself. But speaking of the term unconditional, Pallison ends by saying this, we can do better God does not accept me as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. And he loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be able to use the term unconditional love in the same way again. Pallison describes here the reality of if God did not even spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's love is active. It's active. He didn't just give Jesus and then leave us to fend for ourselves the rest of the way. No, he just gave Jesus first to show that there is nothing that he won't do or give in order to save us. That is the message of the cross. If God would not even spare his own son from death, then there is no measure of grace that he will spare in the ongoing process of redeeming us by his spirit. Okay. And because of that, there is no opposition that can successfully derail the flow of God's sovereign grace in our lives. And that's just the first part. Paul goes on. Next, he says... Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he's saying, not only is there no opposition that can successfully come against us, but there's also no accusation that can confidently stand in the presence of the ultimate judge who justifies sinners by his own blood. Okay? And this is so good. I, I just feel inadequate to even explain these promises. They're just so incredibly beautiful. In verses 33 and 34, when Paul calls Christians elect, he's referring back to verse 29 that says, Before the foundation of the world, God foreknew us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And not only has God chosen us, but he himself has justified us with the blood of Christ. And not only has God chosen us and justified us, but Jesus himself is now in heaven, actively, all the time, interceding on our behalf. Okay? Here's, here's why that's so important, okay? It's because just like people still oppose us, people, people oppose us, right? Okay? People still accuse us too, don't they? People still accuse us. And here's the tough part about that. Sometimes, if we can be honest, the people who accuse us are right about us in their accusations, aren't they? Yeah. Because while we're actively striving to put our sin to death, we still do sin, don't we? Anybody else? I, I, I do. Okay. We talked about that in Romans 7 at the beginning of this series, where Paul himself confesses that he still does the things that he doesn't want to do. And the things that he does want to do, he, he doesn't do them. And it's this constant wrestle inside of him, the flesh and the spirit at war with one another, right? And the spirit is winning, but the flesh is stupid, right? It refuses to give up, even though it's defeated. It has to keep being crucified every day until the return of Christ. But in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John says this. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. That is, he is the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. These verses give us insight into the language of Romans 8 when it says that Jesus is interceding for us. <laughs> He's interceding for us. Every sin that we commit, it's not that God has stopped paying attention to them, okay, after we started following Jesus, okay? He still knows about and sees all of our sin. But as Romans 3.26 says, God has become both just and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus, all right? So because Jesus is, is running every facet of our imperfect lives through the filter of his blood that he sacrificially shed for us on the cross so that when we inevitably continue to struggle with our sin, instead of seeing us okay, as unfaithful and condemned, God the Father, because of the advocate that he himself gave to us and his son, he now sees us as righteous and blameless. Okay, this is why Paul says, who is to condemn us? Who is to condemn us? Because of Christ, we have the ultimate judge as our father. <laughs> the judge is our father. And he's not an unjust judge. He's not a crooked judge. He didn't just sweep our wrongdoing under the rug. He paid for it in full. So it doesn't matter what accusations are made against us, even the ones that are true. The reality for us is at the cross, justice has already been served on our behalf. There's no higher court of appeals. <laughs> if God won't condemn us, who can the answer, friends, is no one. No one. There's a story in John's gospel that in most of our Bibles, there's a footnote or brackets around because it wasn't original to John's gospel, but textual critics left it in there because they do believe it's a legitimate story that happened in Jesus' earthly uh, ministry at some point. They're just not sure where it should go. Uh, some actually say it belongs in Luke's gospel. Uh, but either way, I think it illustrates this second point really well. I want to read it to you uh, because I bet you know it, actually. Um, it says in John chapter 8, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Okay, that means to throw rocks at such women until they're dead. Okay, So they say, this woman should be stoned, all right? This they said to test him. They said, what do you say? That they might have some charge to bring against him. And so Jesus bent down. It says he bent down and he, he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
There's a lot of interesting things to point out about this text. We don't have time for that. I just want us to see the main truth that we could draw out here. It's not that the woman had not committed sin. She had committed sin. She was caught in the act of her sin. It's not that the Pharisees were wrong about the law of Moses, saying that adultery was a sin that deserved death by stoning. It did. It's that there is no accusation that can confidently stand in the presence of the ultimate judge who justifies sinners by his own blood. If this story about the woman caught in adultery did indeed happen, I don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground that caused the Pharisees to drop their stones and walk away. Had to be something really good. (laughs) Wish I knew what what he wrote down there. But that's not what matters most here. What matters most is that it illustrates for us how Jesus does not condemn sinners who place their faith in him because he chose to be condemned in their place. So it really doesn't matter what we're accused of in our sinful past and even our occasional blunders in the present. Anybody here still messing up and having to repent for the same sins again and again? No accusation against God's elect will stand in his presence because he is the ultimate judge and he has paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And he paid for it with his own blood. Okay. If you can imagine, Paul somehow goes on from here. He makes one final point that just seals the deal about the love of God for us, and he does it by asking one final question and then decisively answering it. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there it is. Okay. The promise of no condemnation in verse 1 culminates in the promise of no separation in verse 39. Okay, that there is nothing in existence that can sever the eternal contra-conditional love of God from us. Maybe that's a new term for you, contra-conditional love. It was new for me too, but I used it after uh, reading David Pallison's rejection of the inadequate term of unconditional love. I just couldn't use that again, so... um, There was another great author, Ed Welch, who said it this way. He said, perhaps we could call it contra-conditional love. That is, contrary to the conditions normally required to know God's blessing, he has blessed me because his son fulfilled the conditions. Contrary to what I deserve, he loves me. That's contra-conditional love. Love. You see, friends, Paul knew that because of the difficulties of the broken world we live in and the difficulty of following Christ and the difficulty of killing our sin, there are so many things that can cause us to doubt the love of God for us, aren't there? When bad things happen to us, we wonder, does God still even love me? When we sin, Again, we wallow in self-pity and declare, how can God still love me? And so Paul's final celebratory truth is this. Because there is nothing in all creation that secured God's love for you, there is, in effect, nothing in all creation that can sever God's love from you. It's contra-conditional. Now hear this. God's love does have conditions. (laughs) God's love has conditions. In fact, 
God's love has rigorous conditions. If you're going to be loved by God, here's the conditions. Be perfect. Be perfect. That's the conditions to be loved by God. And to that, we should all desperately say, but I, I can't. I can't be perfect. And this is the point of the gospel and the depth of the love of God. You cannot be perfect. And so you do not deserve the love of God. But Jesus was perfect for you. And now you not only deserve the love of God in Christ, but nothing can change that and nothing can separate you from that. <laughs> Church, nothing and no one can separate you from the love of God. This is why Paul says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us because, spoiler alert, we're going to win in the end. <laughs> we're going to win in the end, not because we were born winners, because God has loved us with an unshakable, unbeatable, imperishable, impossible to change love that nothing can separate us from. Not suffering, not Satan, not your own sin. You're good at sinning, aren't you? <laughs> Me too. Jesus is better at grace than you are at sinning. So not even your own sin, nothing. This is the greatest and most celebratory truth in the universe. If your faith is in Jesus, there is nothing that can ever separate you from the redeeming love of God for you. God loves you, and he will never stop. He'll never stop. I can't say it any more clearly than that. As I was thinking through this text and reading all the things Paul says that can't separate us from the love of God, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not depth. I feel like he just, Paul just runs out of things. He's just, so he just says nothing, nothing, okay? Whatever you come up with, even things in the future that you come up with, nothing can separate you, right? I was thinking about that. It made me think of that movie with Brad Pitt. If you're like, what? <laughs> Where's this going? A movie with Brad Pitt they made years ago. It's called uh, Troy. It's about Achilles, mythical Greek hero of the Trojan War. And I, I thought about it because in the opening scene, it's a, it's a battle scene, right? If you've seen it, it's a battle scene. It's staged very much like David and Goliath, right? The Trojan army is on one side of the field and the enemy army on the other. And they've decided that rather than spill unnecessary blood, that they're just going to do a face-off, right, between the two best soldiers. And the enemy army has this huge, like, nine-foot-tall, yoked monster dude, right? <laughs> it looks about like what you think Goliath would have looked like. And then Achilles shows up, and he starts walking towards this guy. And his walk turns into a jog. His jog turns into a run. His run turns into a sprint. And this giant, he hurls this spear at Achilles. And Achilles blocks it with a shield. He throws off the shield. And then this guy, he hurls another spear. And Achilles just kind of like artfully dodges. He's just like down like that to miss it. He doesn't even slow down. Right? He doesn't even slow down. He finally gets up to this guy. He jumps like a pole vaulter. And the scene in the movie, it just goes into the, like slow-mo, right? I love this. It's like in slow-mo. Achilles skillfully pulls out his sword. You didn't even see it. It was like pulls it out, you know? And he just sticks it right through this guy's shoulder, down into his chest. And this huge 
monster enemy guy. Achilles lands on his feet perfectly. Doesn't even look back. This guy just, boom, dead on the ground, right? So the Trojan army cheers, right? Oh, yeah, right. Achilles, they're cheering his name. But Achilles just keeps walking towards this enemy army. And they're all lined up and they're arrayed with weapons and helmets and shields, presumably ready to fight. But they're just standing there motionless. Motionless. And Achilles just yells the most famous line from this movie. All the men in the room know it, right? He says, is there no one else? Is there no one else? And some of these soldiers, they just look down at the ground. (laughs) And no one says a word. I love this scene because it's like what Christ has done for us. He has defeated the giant of sin, death, and the devil, and he stares our enemies in the face. Anyone who would oppose us, anyone who would accuse us, and anything that would dare try to separate us from his love, and he says, is there no one else? Is there no one else? There's no one else. There's no one else. No one, not even the devil himself, would dare say a word. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is nothing in all creation that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that's the end of Romans 8. No condemnation for sinners and strugglers who have been filled by the Spirit. No opposition that can successfully derail the flow of God's sovereign grace in our lives. No accusation that can confidently stand in the presence of the ultimate judge who justifies sinners with his own blood. No separation. There is nothing in existence that can sever the eternal love of God from us. So I'd like, to, like us to close today by taking the Lord's Supper. And uh, it's been a little while since we have, but it's really simple. It's one of the two ordinances that Jesus gave his church to participate in until his return. And all it is is for those who have officially trusted in Christ by faith, We take bread and we take juice, and these two are representative. The bread represents the body of Christ that he allowed to be broken on the cross for us. The juice represents the blood of Christ that he allowed to be poured out to cover over all of our sin and atone for our sin. And Jesus told us, he told us to continue doing this, to keep having this symbolic ceremony of sorts until his return as a way of remembering his death that secured for us the promise of no condemnation. <laughs> right? So I'm going to pray in just a minute, and I would just encourage anyone who is a born-again disciple of Jesus to come and to partake in the elements of the Lord's table in order first to do two things. First of all, to remember. To remember with joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy the death of Christ for you. And number two, in order to long, to long for the day that he will return to finally and fully vanquish sin and take us home into eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> this is what we do during the Lord's Supper Before I pray, I just want to say one final thing in this series. If there is anyone here this morning who's still on the fence about coming to Jesus, I just implore you, don't wait another day. 
Don't wait another day. Romans 8 is the strongest appeal in all the Bible to the fact that God loves you. He loves you so much. So much. And he has stopped at nothing to restore your relationship with him. Yes, you're still a sinner. Yes, there are things about God that are still hard to understand. But here's what's not hard to understand. Jesus loves and came into the world to save sinners. You can take my word for it. I'm, I've met a lot of sinners. I'm still the worst one that I know. He loves you. He loves you. So if you're weary and heavy laden, come. Come to Jesus because only he has the rest and the love that your soul needs. Let's pray. Father, God, and I find myself sad this morning to end the chapter of Romans 8. And, uh, but Father, at the same time, I am just filled with joy over the promises, the amazing promises that you have given to us in Romans 8. That for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who trust your son Jesus, for those whose eyes, whose spiritual eyes have been opened, not on their own doing, but by this Holy Spirit that you send, Father. Those whose eyes have been opened to see Jesus for who he really is as Lord, Savior, God, and friend. Father, there is therefore now no condemnation for them. Their sin has been paid for. Justice has been served completely and definitively and finally on the cross. God, thank you for that. And thank you that knowing that, knowing about your love that's unfathomable that went into that, not only is there no condemnation, but there will never be any condemnation. And there will never be any separation from you and from your love. There's nothing that can separate us. We thank you for that. And Father, I pray that the believers in here would cling to that truth today as they drink the juice and eat the bread and remember what Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. Father, if there's anybody here today who's on the fence and they're thinking about coming to you and they're not sure, Father, I just pray that you just wipe all that away. Make them sure from Romans 8 about the love that you have for them and help them to come to you by your spirit. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.